You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Hi, hello, and welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Louis Kornfeld. My guest today is the great Roman Reimer. Hello. Thank you for talking. Oh, thank you for listening. A little bit of background uh, on you, Roman. Uh, so R- Roman, years ago, was a student here at the Magnet and a performer here at the Magnet. Uh, uh, you've relocated to San Francisco uh, um, uh, after making your way all across the country and uh, uh, um, doing a lot of, of, of work. You straddle the line between comedy and activism. Uh, uh, and and I just want to preface by saying that you, Roman, I'm speaking to the audience now, Roman is one of the very few people I've met in my life with a, who seems to have a true sense of mission oh. with your life. You're one of the few people I know who, who seems to like really know what you're about and really know what you're after uh, uh, and live life with a very particular and unique zeal. Oh. Uh, and I'm excited to talk about oh, it on the program thanks. today. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah. It's a really nice way of uh, framing it. Yeah, it's true. That's true. You well. Let let before starting with like your your life history a little bit. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your approach to comedy. Yeah. Um. Uh. I've seen you perform a, a bunch outside of just magnet stuff, uh, and you do a blend of stand up and and storytelling, and and you do some really personal work. How would you describe the kind of comedy that you do? Uh, truthful. Yeah. And aiming the punchline upwards. Yeah. Because a lot of times, and often in comedy, there's folks making fun of marginalized people mm-hmm. and, or even sometimes separate self-deprecation, which I also do sometimes. I just feel like if I feel like the stage is a very sacred space. So when one is on it, one can use that humor to punch upwards mm-hmm. at the ruling classes or however you want to look at that. But the folks who kind of shift things in a way to make it uncomfortable for the rest of us down here. When somebody goes to see your perform, uh, what kind of topics will you be exposing them to as you're punching upwards? Uh, police brutality, uh-huh. certainly. You yeah. can't not uh, talk about that. Uh, incarceration, mass incarceration. I'm a prison abolitionist. Yeah. I believe in a world without prisons. Yeah. Um, I'm very much in terms of in favor of cannabis legalization and I guess all substances beyond that, but definitely like with cannabis legalization and that's been increasing across the country, but it's different based on the state and it's very interesting to be in different states and to meet so many people who use it as medicine and like, you know, some people use it recreationally, some people use it as medicine, but being brought up in the eighties in this country and even before just like the brainwashing, this anti-drug culture, mm-hmm. anti-information, uh, with big pharma or alcohol or the prison industrial complex kind of profiting off making a plant illegal and locking people up for it, I think is ridiculous. Yeah. So I'm very much invested and in favor of having conversations to help promote that. And I don't even, you know, I mean, it's like already happening. Yeah. It's, uh, thankfully the, the good dominoes are falling in terms of folks becoming more exposed and educated as far as cannabis goes. Yeah. I just hope it, it transfers out to the, uh, for folks who are incarcerated for it. Do you think it is? Is it starting? Yeah. And even in Colorado, they've made so much more money than they could. So even if it goes down to greed and not just the basic principle of having something that should be accessible to everyone, mm. they've been making so much money that it's like, it's so much more than they even anticipated. Yeah. So now they're able to have the funds to use it for whatever. And it has not increased, like they can use it to like for schools or for whatever. Um, they want to, but they haven't found any increase in youth using it at all. Mm. So there's not, there's not in, there's not extra violence happening. Yeah. So it's the things that people were maybe afraid of 
or reasons for people to say it shouldn't be legal have not happened. Yeah. Is it, do you think, please forgive me if this is a really ignorant question. Do you think that the legalization of cannabis um, will raise enough revenue to maybe help out with some of the incarceration problems that we have in the country? Well, sure. I mean, well, incarceration problems, I think most people who are in jail don't deserve to be in jail. That's my own. Sure. Uh, So. uh, I I mean, in terms of the way that that there is an incarceration complex, that it's a privatized business. Yeah. uh, We're just making a lot of profit off of it. So it's for the powers that be, it's not really in their interest to close down prisons and find better ways to to reform people. And I even feel iffy using the word reform people because a lot of people are in prison who do not need to be reformed at all. And a lot of people are in prison who probably do need a lot of help and prison is not the solution to their problems. So, So by legalizing statewide cannabis, do you think that that uh, that might help in bringing more revenue to the state so that they will stop? Yeah, one would hope. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. What, uh, uh, since you've... Well, actually, let me back up a little bit. Uh, let me start off a little bit with your background for, for people listening to the podcast who don't know you and haven't been around the magnet for a long time. Uh, um, so, so where are you from originally? Where did you grow up? I grew up in the East Bay, in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. like outside of San Francisco. Yeah. Like I was in Richmond, which is a city that's kind of close to Berkeley. And then when I was four, my family moved out to the suburbs of Chicago, a town called Oak Park. Mm-hmm. Lived there for about eight years. And then we moved back to the Bay Area. What brought you to Chicago for, for, for that sojourn? Oh, my, my dad had a job, mm-hmm. got a job at University of Illinois. He's so, a, a teacher? Yeah, he's what, a professor. Okay, of, of what? Public administration. Okay. What does that uh, uh, entail, please? Um, <laughs> I feel like other folks uh, could describe it better than I can. Okay. I mean, there's some similarities to public policy Okay. Uh, with that. Yeah. But, so you grew up surrounded by um, uh, 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 college students. You, you grew up in a very collegiate environment? Um, not, nece- not necessarily. Okay. Um, I would say there's a lot of books in the house, but not necessarily. I didn't grow up close to a, a college, per se. Yeah. And, and correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but I seem to remember you and I talking one time years ago uh, um, and talking about communism and communism being a big part of your upbringing. Is that sure. right? Yeah. It was, it was there, but it wasn't discussed very much. Yeah. I think being brought up in the eighties, which is a whole decade of anti-communism, yeah. just anti a lot of things. Yeah. Like, uh, I, f- I think it's a, it's a miracle that so many of us were born in the eighties kind of made it out given what was happening in the States at yeah. that time when at the beginning X amount of money was going to social programs and less going to the military. And by the end of it, it kind of had flipped and so with so much of the military industrial complex, like having that effect, you know, you, even though you're a child, even though I was a child and living through it, I couldn't help but ignore those messages. Yeah. A lot of the us versus them, the military, like anti-Russian, uh, stranger danger, which goes into kids, like don't say, just say no to drugs, like a lot of brainwashing, um, a lot of brainwashing. And then if you're going to go into like, what's happening within, you know, the cities and with the crack epidemic mm-hmm. and a lot, you know, a lot of like black families, you know, losing people and then the HIV epidemic as well. Um, where folks really had to, and also losing people. And those are, you know, two communities that were really decimated in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting growing up in that era, because I don't remember like consciously registering a lot of that stuff. I, I, I knew, I didn't know what crack was, but I remember, I remember the indoctrination of like, beware the inner city. 
I, I, I didn't really understand anything about the Reagan clan, but I certainly, I remember saying no to drugs being a very, very aggressive message everywhere in schools, on TV, everywhere, even like, cause I, I don't know how you grew up. I, I grew up absorbing just a shit ton of television. I watched yes. a lot of sitcoms. Same. And, and that era of sitcoms, you're watching like different strokes and, and family ties and all this stuff that like this Reagan message keeps on like coming through. There were like always very special episodes of that show where like Nancy yeah. Reagan would appear to tell you uh, uh, what to be afraid of and what to avoid with your life. Yes. <laughs> and just like a lot of, of like conditioning people to grow up with the sense of suspicion and fear, fear of other people and fear of yourself. Yep. And, and fear of all the dangers that are lurking everywhere and, 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 and about identifying as like a good, proud, true American. Um, and it, it is really interesting because like now a lot of that stuff seems to have blown up into, and this is obviously like such a general statement, how can I back it up? But it, it, this culture of just like fear and insecurity and, and not even having a sense, like all of that thing of like all, all the work that went into making, making kids uh, grow up identifying as good Americans. It now seems to me like not many people that, that I know actually have a sense of like a national identity. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you have a sense of like a tribal identity or a communal identity mm -hmm. or, or an individual identity. But, but I don't know from my, like from my little ivory tower here on the East coast, I obviously can't talk about the rest of America, but it feels like a very, very fractured thing. This, this all, all pumping up this big, this big uh, uh, smoke screen seems to have like really fractured into so many pieces. Nobody can make sense of them. Yes, absolutely. I think it's funny. That's we're called the United States. Yeah. Because we don't. I don't feel very united and just based. It's so ridiculous though that. But I'm I'm for like no borders anywhere yeah. like at all with you know countries or anything. And the fact that we live in a in a world where people do build walls to separate one another and people do draw lines on land and there's that idea this false idea of land ownership when I don't you know nobody owns the land. We're all here sharing the land together. Yeah. And we've been brought up to, I guess, yeah, separate ourselves and to distance ourselves and to make these, uh, I guess, distinctions and uh, think of other people as like as the other, like this really us and them, this binary, mm -hmm. uh, which is, of course, how wars get started, this us versus them. The you have a, an amazing sensitivity to violence in all forms. That's oh, been my yeah. experience of you. you. You're very, very sensitive to, to, to violence. And you pick up on, on very, um, uh, uh, you, you will notice where there's violence where other people may not notice it mm. and, and register it and, and be kind of like the first alarm bell that like there's something, something's not good between people. I've yeah. seen that a few times. Uh, um, but what are your thoughts on, on, because to me there, there is a certain amount of violence, uh, and a certain amount of us versus them or a certain amount of antagonism that is just sort of there, there's the cultural edifice of that and, and the cultural reinforcement of that. Yes. And then underneath the cultural reinforcement of that is a, a biological aspect of it where there's just a certain amount of hostilities and a certain amount of, of, uh, uh whether or not we have borders, uh, people do feel the need to nest and, and, and you do need a sense of kind of individual physical security. Sure. And, and so like what, I, I guess like speaking as a, as a, as a pacifist, can I call you a pacifist? Sure. Great. Yeah. Speaking as a pacifist, like what is your sense on, on, is it realistic mm -hmm. to, to envision a world where we're eradicating 
borders uh, entirely. It may not. It may not be realistic. It may be incredibly naive. But I'd rather be naive and plant some seeds that never grow than just be completely doubtful and cynical and say it's not worth it. I love you, Roman Reimer. This is this is what I love about you. That is so beautiful. You okay? Great. Let, let's continue with with your story because I, I want to go into this more. So you you lived in Chicago for a while, then you moved back to San Francisco. Yeah. What happened between San Francisco and when I first met you in New York? What, oh. Catch me up on your life. Okay, well, I went to I went to college mm-hmm. out on the on the East Coast out here. Uh, I went to Sarah Lawrence for mm-hmm. a couple of years, and then I went to I studied in London for a year at Goldsmiths, uh, which is like a creative arts school there. And it was I felt really pri- privileged to be able to to study abroad for yeah. that year. And I studied theater and psychology at both places, and then went back to Sarah Lawrence for my final year. And then after that, tried to stay in New York. Yeah, and I stayed with some cousins in Teaneck, New Jersey, for a little bit, and bounced around, and then finally got a spot and it was a loft on, on Rector street. And this is 2002. Mm-hmm. So September, 2002. So there was a lot of energy and just a lot, there's a lot going on with the city was, was going through at that time. Yeah. And I was out of college and open to doing anything. I've always considered myself to be an artist of whatever variety, whatever medium. Um, but of course, unfortunately, since we live in a capitalist country that does not support the arts most artists have to have at least one or two other jobs Mm -hmm. so I feel like that was uh something that wasn't quite taught to me when Mm -hmm. I was younger or maybe just I was unaware of and when I'm speaking to people who have worked in other countries other artists to hear about people's work being funded and how it seems so strange to me like it obviously should be that way um people should artists should be able to create their work but I feel like since so many people just to struggle to get food on the table, to have a roof over their head. People end up, a lot of artists and creative, amazing folks end up working in jobs that might not feel satisfying. However, they do provide the the structure and the stability of a steady paycheck and or benefits. And I ended up doing that for like a lot of different, a lot of different jobs, yeah. certainly. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, there's also like the, the element of like, you have to prove yourself as being like a marketable commodity as an artist. It, it, not just that you're a, a creative person or an expressive person, but you also have to kind of demonstrate that that you specialize in a set of skills that can profit other people. Yeah. Um, which, like, it, it's interesting just hearing you say it, uh, uh, um, this image of, of being an artist who's able to use many different mediums in many different forms as opposed to to like somebody who kind of like specializes in one particular like language or medium and then what i do is try to try to perfect this language or medium yeah it's very interesting because being that that kind of single-minded about a single medium um there are certain things that you might be able to express very beautifully or certain discoveries that you might be able to make uh, uh, um that are extremely enlightening to you that you wouldn't come to in that specific medium that you would need the, the kind of like variability of, yeah. of, of being able to be a visual artist and a photographer and an actor and, and, uh, and, and a playwright and, uh, and an experimental, uh, um, whatever. Um, so it, it's like really interesting to think of like a state funded world where people are free to just kind of explore as many avenues as possible and, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and really truly improvise with the medium in hand to kind of figure out what we're creating together. Yeah. I think that'd be quite beautiful. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so I met you, when did I meet you? You, you, so a little bit of trivia, you were actually, I'd mentioned this before the podcast, my very first uh, official moment where I was hired by the magnet to teach anything, I covered the first half of a Rachel Hamilton class that you were in, you and, and, and Benu, I believe Ruby 
Merez was in it. I don't remember yeah. who else was in the class, but that was the first time I met you. And that would have been what? Probably like 2006, 2006. Yeah. 2006, 2007, yeah. 2006, I think. Yeah. What, what, what brought you to the world of improv? Uh, I did short form in high school okay. and I really enjoyed it. I was always introverted growing up very, very, very shy. Um, I always liked writing and creating, you know, writing, drawing, painting, anything creative. And with theater, of course, it's, uh, you know, a lot of folks say it's a very safe outlet and it can be respite for folks who are shy and a place for folks to actually be heard Mm -hmm. and a a place to belong. And hopefully with, you know, like-minded folks who also want to play and have a good time. Yeah. And it's somewhat like less serious and, uh, more fun than offstage can be. Yeah. Do you just going back for a second, uh, um, uh, how do you square off that introversion with being naturally attracted to theater or choosing that to study growing up? I- is it that thing of, of you kind of create a circumstance for yourself where there's a freedom to be expressive and open? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. And also just finding the, the balance certainly. Yeah. And, uh, wanting, wanting to speak like the, the talking heads, what's the quote? Uh, you're talking a lot, but you're not saying anything. I feel like I just think about that every day, just, overhearing people's conversations and sometimes the loudest voices and the voices we hear the most, whether it's especially I guess in media or just folks who have like the least amount to say or folks who want to hurt people. Mm-hmm. The, those are the voices that we're hearing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the folks with power who have the, the privilege and the ability to get their word out to the masses. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's also it's saying, Oh, well I also have a voice and, uh, kind of speaking up against that. Yeah. The, yeah, it, it if you, if you like, watch like Fox news, Fox news or something and like tune out what specifically people are saying. And you just listen to how people are saying it. I'm not saying anything like new or insightful here. This is, you know, like, I, I, like pretty, I think commonly assumed, but like it, it, it's very like dog, like or pack animal, like it, it's just whoever barks the loudest and, and can make other people sub, be submissive around them. Then what they're, it's not so much that that we believe that what they're saying is true as like, okay, we listen to you. It's a very like mammal instinct. Yeah. You're, you're the big dog. So we all kind of cower down to you, but then you combine like that mammal behavior, which like it's still right. It's like millions of years of mammal behavior that make up how we actually act. And then a few thousand years of like rational human intelligence kind of growing out of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and so the mammal behavior is going to win nine times out of 10 because it's so much older and so much stronger and, and takes over like your autonomic nervous system. Yeah. We just, as human beings have this interesting ability to, to rationalize to ourselves that uh, I'm not being submissive. I agree with your points. And then we come up with a list of reasons why I agree with your points. When in fact, there's nothing really rational about why people are letting themselves become submissive. It's a purely mammalian thing. Right. Like it's because like when you listen to like people like defend some of the arguments and you realize that like you're defending an argument that fucks you over. Yeah. You're, you're defending a point of view where you're the one who's being hurt by this point of view, but you're still able to come up with reasons why it's a good idea. That to me is an indication that like, oh, there's mixed levels of thinking right here. You're really doing your thinking from an emotional fear based place. Yes. And it's being filtered through like rational human thought and it's coming out in language. But what you're saying makes zero sense whatsoever. Um, and then obviously like who funds these networks are other top dogs, yeah, right? Like, uh, uh, other big shots and shit like that. So to me, like, here's the situation as I see it. I apologize that I'm rambling so much. The situation that I see it is that like, there's like a, a small, 
uh, 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 like spark of like genuine human possibilities mm-hmm. in this larger context of millions and millions of years of of like primitive animal behavior. Uh, um, and that little tiny spark is something that like these more conservative or archaic circuits are constantly trying to undo mm. because like, it's just a preservation of like top dog wants to remain top dog. Right. Top dog doesn't give a shit about the bottom dog. Yeah. But, you know, bottom dogs are there only to, to protect the top dog. Yeah. To serve them. To serve them. Uh, and so like the situation that we find ourselves in, at least in my opinion, is there's a part of our brain that we identify as being very human and, and, and having the ability to uh, reimagine things and think things through. But that part is still so new mm-hmm. uh, 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 in this deeper context that really it's this battle of like, our own animal natures keep on overriding that part. So it's just this thing of like adding more and more passion and more and more focus to, to give birth to the actual human part of us that's in there, but is still an embryo really. Yeah. Your thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's the idea of, I guess with childbirth and the idea of like with artistry and the idea of a like creation, yeah. however, you know, folks want to uh, make that, you know, make that correlation where you, you know, different ways of adding, you know, not to, I commend anyone who's has the ability to, to, you know, to give birth. I don't know. I'm it's anyway, that's where this tangent is going. I just have, I've heard the, the idea before with like art, you know, you're, you're creating something, you're putting something into the world to, to hopefully make it better than it was when you got here mm. in a way. And that could be raising it. Not, it doesn't even have to be through birth, raising a child. It could be through teaching. It could be through creating art. Uh, it could be through science, uh, through protecting the environment. There are so many different ways to, uh, maybe make the world a little bit better. Mm. So by the time that we leave, it's on a better track than when we got here. Yeah. And it's a matter of finding things that ever, like not everyone, but like people can agree on, even if we're, we're not uh, seeing eye to eye, we both kind of have a sense of what we could, what could happen. Yeah. Even though it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Let's talk about seeing eye to eye for a second, because you, I'm kind of skipping forward in time a little bit. But you spent a considerable amount of time traveling all around the country uh, uh, um, and doing your show. And, and, and tell me about your show. It, 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 it's part comedy, but it's also part educational. Yeah, I've done a few different like storytelling shows and mostly monologues just talking about my life. Yeah. So the first solo one I did was about when I transitioned and I was assigned female at birth and viewed as, as such. And the language continues to change. So, yeah. hopefully, you know, and if people listening to this in a few years be like, why, why was Roman using that? The words, like the words are always changing. Yeah. However, uh, so my first solo show, I would say was just talking about that experience and it was very cathartic and it was educational and it helped with, with both just being able to come to terms with it. Cause it's a difficult decision to make sure. and also being able to be open about it. And to the fact that I have had theater, some theater training and had the opportunity and the, I guess the ability to create something and share it with people. I thought was a really good, good step to take. Yeah. And it helped me get, get through it in a way. Yeah. And I can only imagine there must be something kind of terrifying, right? About going to like strange places in, in order to share something so, so deeply personal with strangers in the hope of reaching them and connecting and, and, and like edifying them. So, so what, how, like, I can only assume that you've encountered a lot of people who you don't see eye to eye with. That's my guess. 
Um, actually, we're not talking about police officers here. Yeah. Uh, other, you know, I don't want to generalize. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been surprised by how kind people have been. Yeah. Like, yeah, there are. I, th- I feel like people were like just pretty much we're mirrors of each other, and how we treat uh, other people is how we ourselves want to be treated a lot of the time. Yeah. In in some in some regards. Yeah. So for the folks who are comfortable with themselves, they kind of got it immediately and are very open to it and understanding of it. And for folks who maybe have their own their own stuff that they need to figure out. Sometimes I could be used as a target mm-hmm. or maybe I bring up where, well, I exist. So, and if I exist, that means you could also exist if you also happen to identify this way or have been thinking about this. So I think it can maybe set people off a little bit, but that's how, I mean, that's how uh, people, people change as you see someone else to do it. You see it as a possibility. And then that makes it that much more real. Mm-hmm. You're conscious of the possibility that you could set people off. Mm-hmm. How so? What is it like stepping into to go and perform, knowing that there's a possibility that somebody might feel provoked and and want to provoke back, or or, or sees you as like a target to take oh. their bullshit out on? Well, I usually hope I will provoke in a positive way, or mm-hmm. just give folks something to think about or feel, and that kind of usual yeah. like artistry stuff. You know, you want to connect with people and have them feel differently afterwards. Yeah, and go on a journey with them. I haven't been heckled too many times. There have been a couple times when people have yelled yelled things back mm-hmm. and. I, it's, I, I'm able, usually able to handle it. One time I ended up just yelling back at someone, which is not really my MO. Yeah. I was just very frustrated. There yeah. was, uh, an art space in San Francisco and there, there had some queer artists who created this. There's like a beautiful mural outside and the mural had three panels and on one part of it, there was two men together and one part there was two women together and there's a trans man in the middle and it was defaced a couple times and then it was set on fire. And this happened in the mission, and there's been a lot of tension. There's been a lot of police brutality in San Francisco. There's been a lot of uh, folks moving in, people being displaced. Mm-hmm. And so this is just what's you know going on in the neighborhood, and of course it's going to affect folks differently. And I went to the, the comedy mic, and I wasn't being that... Sometimes I'm just not that comical. I'll just talk about politics and what's actually going on, mm-hmm. and I don't necessarily expect people to laugh, but I feel I need to be heard. I need to talk about it. So I talked about this event, and someone in the audience knew some of the folks who had committed the arson. So it was this very much, and I knew, like, I knew friend. I was, like, friends of friends of the artists. So it was, like, these, again, it's, like, maybe not seeing eye to eye, but we're both, we all live in the same world. Yeah. So it's, like, how can we come to terms with this this action that, you know, hurt people and also as a, as a trans person especially and as a lot of, a lot of folks who, like, are marginalized or don't feel safe to have a, an action like that that's... I'm, I am gonna. I am gonna yell about it if someone you know wants to speak up about it. Yeah. So what happened when when you yelled back? What like what was the engagement like? Did 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 they? Was there like a dialogue between you? There was a bit of a dialogue, and I just started screaming. There there was a, there have always been queer people in the mission, yeah. and it's it's again it's like people's uh, identities being erased, which is like a history of this country, pretty much. Yeah. It's colonization, people coming in, and identities being erased. Yeah. So that's where I, I was coming from. We actually spoke afterwards. And, uh, it was, it was good. Cause sometimes, I mean, I, f- I see plenty of comedy in variety of places that offends the shit out of me. Like, so much sexist shit. Yeah. Like there's racist shit and there's so much, there's so much misogyny. Like there's still just so much. And I think it's overlooked yeah. because it's feels commonplace to some people. Mm-hmm. And then even just walking down the street here, just like hearing people be catcalled, like, and again, it's something that might, people might not necessarily be that tuned into, but having experienced it and having lived through it, like, and then also, you know, seeing my friends go through it and hearing about their stories, it's impossible to ignore. So yeah. anyway, I see a lot of com- comedians that are just making like, you know, 
misogynist jokes and I never yell at them. If I have the energy after they're set, I'll go up and I'll talk to them and be like, or especially if it's something transphobic, then I'll out myself certainly because I feel like I have that privilege and I should be, the very least I can do is out myself and mm-hmm. have a conversation. Well, if you don't mind me asking, uh, uh, so what was this conversation like with this person after the show when you spoke together? That, that to me is a nightmare scenario. It was uh, a lot more calm than it was inside. Yeah. This, and I was definitely angry. Yeah. Um, it was interesting because I've been learning about like masculine, you know, this idea of masculinity in our country and how just it's so aggressive, unnecessarily aggressive. And men are, it's easier for men to maybe hit each other or punch each other than to hug each other. Yeah. And uh, just this overly, it's like, it seems overly aggressive. And I feel like this other, this other comedian who was upset by what I said, he respected, he actually apologized. He respected this by This was me. a comedian who knew the people who defaced that mural? Mm-hmm. Wow. So... I yelled, you know, I, I yelled at him. And by doing so, I think that kind of impressed him because I was maybe showing, taking up space or being, even though I felt very uncomfortable being in that role. Cause I don't like to yell. I don't like to fight. Yeah. I was having this conversation with a friend last night. Uh, 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 I, I hate confrontation. I hate conflict. I, I feel like the bulk of my motivation through life is to just not have people angry at me. I mean, it's not, I'm, it's not a proud thing to admit, but it, it is true. Um, but I was in a situation recently where I had to kind of like stand my ground and it's very uncomfortable. Like I'll start like crying if I, if I have to make a forceful opinion or, or hold my own or disagree with somebody, it, it brings up a lot of emotions for me. Um, uh, and like this particular situation worked out very well. And it sort of occurred to me that like there are times in life where either other people are like testing you to see if you're committed enough to what you're saying or what you believe to, to see if you will butt heads with them. Or there's just other times where like you have to go through the conflict itself to, in order to win somebody else's respect. There's just kind of like no other way but through it, which I feel like at this stage of life, it's almost like how do I not know that by now? How has that not really occurred to him? Like in my mid thirties, for God's sake, you know, but, but that seems to be a lesson that a lot of other people know, but it's only just dawning on me now that like, sometimes there's a place to, for conflict. Sometimes it's important. It's the only way people will actually give you the time of day. Yeah. Which is, it's, it's, it's frightening. I I wish there was a, there's a, the recent, uh, the elected, I want to say president of, uh, in Spain, mm. I forget the city, Barcelona, uh-huh. possibly, uh-huh. uh, like very, like a, a community organizer was elected mayor and, uh, she was talking about having more of like a feminine feminization of democracy in a mm. way. And just really like this kind of leaving behind more of the aggressive, whether that's in policy or whether that's in war, yeah. just the way of like running a city and yeah. how refreshing is that? And how nice would that be for America yeah. to be a, putting down of the weapons and uh, a kind of a, a not to, cause everyone has different interpretations of what's considered masculine or feminine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to use neither one of those words, just, I guess, a more like open and more connected, uh, less militaristic country, I think would be wonderful. You've traveled around a, a lot more than I have, and you've met a lot more people than I have from many, many, from a, a much broader uh, um, set of communities than I have. In your experience, does it feel as much bullshit? Maybe I'm trying to steer this towards something optimistic. I hope. Sure. I'm yeah, not, please. Everything should be steered optimistically. Look at the world we're living in. God bless you, Roman. <laughs> uh, uh, um, despite all the clear bullshit that's everywhere. Yeah. 
in your experience, does it feel like we're veering as a race? That's obviously way too broad, but, but, but as the human race, are we veering towards something less binary than we've been less yes. extreme? Are, are, are we, are, do you think we're in the process of becoming something better than we have been? I think yes for that. And also, also just like talking to the, the next generation, I do have some hope. Yeah. I, I do feel a little bit worried. Maybe it's my age showing just like everyone spending so much more time with technology, with phones yeah, and behind yeah. screens than they are with one another. Yeah. But then I was talking to someone recently and they were saying it was, it's always been like that, but people just used to hide behind their newspapers on the train. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily, it's just an, it's a new distraction for people to not communicate with one another. Yeah. B- b- although there, there are signs on the subway now, um, um, of like parents, please talk to your children. It's like a public service message. Please yeah. talk to your children because I, I think that unlike a newspaper, you can certainly hide behind it, but it doesn't interact with you. Yes. Yes. And, and with the new technology, there's just a thing where it's like, I never have to be bored for a second of my life ever again. Yes. And it's not just processing information. I just, I will have this shit interact with me. And, and so you definitely are seeing that like, People actually have to communicate the message, talk to children, mm. so, so that they learn how to understand human faces. Ooh, that, that, so, that's a scary thing. That's, that is worrisome. And also people relying on, and I do it too, you know, relying on, on phones for information, like a yeah. map, which is handy to have a map, but then you can also ask someone in the neighborhood yeah. for directions. Yeah. And people have a lot more information than, than phones do, but I feel like it's a lot safer. It's, but it's also censored. You know, the information we get is censored, certainly, right. and uh, not everyone has access to it. And it does, I feel, in a lot of ways, it can connect people, then it also can separate people. Very much so. It, it, like anything, it's kind of, it's not the technology itself, it's the judgment that we show and how we use it. Yeah, yeah. Which is hard. It's hard. We, we're, especially those of us who have the privilege of leisure in our lives, who don't have to worry about where our next meal is coming from every day. Yes. It, it's, we're, we're very addictive personalities, all of us it's really hard not to be addictive to the things that just kind of make us feel comfortable and, and make us feel safe. Um, um, we're extremely habitual. So it's really hard to, to remember that like all things in proportion, I have to use my judgment about how to use this well and appropriately. Yeah. Your judgment goes out the window sometimes when it's just like up oh, easy access to information, yeah. whatever this, this phone will tell me everything I need and I don't have to look another person in the eye. Yeah. It's instant gratification. Yeah. So, but you're optimistic. I can see the, the pros and the cons, and I am. I think things are maybe becoming more polarized, and maybe that's because the truth is being revealed more. And whether that's through whistleblowers and people actually speaking out who work for corrupt people or corrupt organizations and letting the truth be known, um, that will encourage other folks to do the same. Mm-hmm. And so, I think with people waking up and actually realizing that we live in a police state, certainly, and do we want to pass this world on to our our children or not, and are we going to actually do something about it? Yeah. Uh. uh um, I, I want to go back for a second to something that you said earlier that I, I found really interesting that you had said that mostly we, we kind of mirror each other and, and that you've had a lot of positive experiences talking with people face to face. Yeah. Um, uh, which, which I, I find really interesting because there, there's obviously a, a, a distortion in the media Oh yeah. About what people really think and really feel or as if people really know what they think and, and feel as if that's not, as if that's immutable and it just boils down to like issues that we're always a hundred percent for or against as if we're not as human beings fluctuating all the time and, and, and dynamic and moving and changing our mind even in the same sentence sometimes. Yeah. Uh, um, my 
point of view on stuff is that most of the people that I've met in my very, very narrow corner of the world seem to be very decent people who are just trying to do their best Yeah, uh, and don't really have their pettiness and have their shit with other people and have their natural animosities and whatnot, but for the most part just are trying to get by and be fine. Absolutely. And, and there's like that interesting way that when we only understand each other through mediation uh, and that media presents a very distorted picture uh, uh, where it's like you have to aggressively take sides. You have yes. to aggressively define your position on everything and, and fight for that position or else. Uh, um, that seems to be the massive wedge that keeps people very separated from each other. But actually making eye contact and speaking face-to-face and having to mirror another person's body language and having to have them mirror your body language, you kind of find that like there's common ground that we find like a lot more often than we think we do. Absolutely. I mean, if we actually were to recognize how much more we have in common than not, imagine how we would, you know, begin to interact with one another. Yeah. Like really taking care of each other. Um, uh, it's interesting because I think about that all the time with the nature of improv and and live comedy. Um, because to me there, there's an element of improv, at least the, the kind of improv that I have learned and, and, you know, um, that, that is about kind of like being funny on your feet with other people and, and, and learning how to, how to, how to kind of create. A, a viable product in the moment. But then there's the other element of it, which is the part that I find I'm like kind of most turned on by, which is that experience of kind of all, all of our collective attention is on the same thing at the same moment. Mm-hmm. It, 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 and that it is a thing of like, we're all breathing together in the same tiny room and, and, and together kind of uh, uh, giving birth to something very, subtle and, and precious, but there's, there's a moment where what we're, what we're creating or the message that we're giving kind of comes alive and it belongs to everybody for that 20 minutes before it dissipates and we all go our separate ways. But the, the, there's something that I find to be a very hopeful force. I was talking about this as, as like the X-Men the other day to a friend that like, I kind of feel like improv schools in a way are like training the X-Men, mm. it, you know, there's like the forces of, of, of like the government outside and they have like the sentinels coming and keeping everybody in line. And like a little bit at a time you have these like comedy schools that are teaching people how to be funny, but you're also teaching people how to like find their own unique superpower. Sure. And how to like work that superpower with other people with different superpowers yes. to, to, to come out and kind of collectively uh, engage together. And, and there's just like something of like, just having people face to face, having to explore and recognize what's your superpower and yeah. what's my superpower and what happens when our superpowers come together and share that with a live audience. That to me seems like very much a force for good in this world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it provides a way for people to work together and to, to, to create and to, and to build together in a hopefully in a safe environment. Yeah. So, so where is your art these days? art these days. Well, I'm hosting a podcast, a yeah. news podcast, which isn't necessarily too artsy. Um, but you're getting but, the message out. And you, yeah. talk, tell, tell us about your podcast. Uh, it's called The Weekly Review. Yeah. It's on Mutiny Radio uh, in San Francisco. You can listen at mutinyradio.fm. It's on Fridays at noon Pacific time. And I go through the news. I get a lot of articles from The Intercept, which is the uh, organization that Glenn Greenwald contributes to and helped uh, find. And Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden are two of the folks that Glenn Greenwald has gotten information from. So definitely coming from a perspective of not falling in line with the, the big media here 
and actually reporting on what's what's really going on and questioning like the the hospital that was bombed and uh by US forces mm-hmm. and they've changed the story like at least four times and you know doctors without borders are like you know we've had it like how there's no reason to do this at all and of course one doesn't necessarily I heard about it through a friend of mine for instance and so it's like how is information how does information like travel how does it travel mm-hmm. and how so it's a way of just finding information that i hear about from people i trust and then putting it out to the to the masses and ho- hoping folks will take interest in it and want to research it more and then also have conversations with their friends about it um cuz it's easy to feel well i can only speak for myself i feel like hopeless and uh cowardly in a time of war when mm-hmm. i'm living in a country and there's plenty of countries where that are military the military is aggressive against folks and I don't support that. And most folks don't support that. I remember the, before the Iraq war invasion in 2003, the streets here in New York were filled, you know, Mm -hmm. we're always in the majority who oppose it. And that's just for the folks who are here. Imagine, you know, folks overseas. So we're the majority of people oppose war. However, what we hear from like the mainstream media is we're only hearing from the folks who might profit off it. Mm -hmm. Like the weapons dealers or the generals or, folks whose livelihood depends on, on war. Mm-hmm. Oh. oh, so I talk about stuff like that on the show sometimes and, and just are, like other things I'm interested in, like cannabis legalization across the states and uh-huh. different places that's happening. I talk about police brutality, um, both locally and, and nationally, and again about prison, uh, just the prison industrial complex. And there are folks who are like in Seattle, they decided to, to close a like a juvenile center, they're talking about doing that. And so there are steps being taken to help, you know, get folks out of, out of prison. Um, but that's something I'm, I'm very passionate about. And again, I'm not as active in it as I would like to be. Yeah. But, but it's interesting because you kind of like categorize yourself as being cowardly and not active, but it seems to me like you're dedicating your life to communicating this to people and, and to trying to like shake people us out of, and I include myself in this totally, totally. I I could stand to be educated by you quite a bit. I'm, I'm like super ignorant and and like willfully ignorant on a few things that I just choose to bury my head in the sand about, you know, but but you seem to be making like a real dedicated, concentrated mission of, of trying to like wake us up from, from this dream that we're in. Well, I have the privilege of telling the story. I mean, people have been talking about this since the beginning of this country. It's just been murder after murder after murder. And what's the, the saying is like his, his story, not it's uh, the murderer is the one who gets to tell the story about what actually happened yeah. or, you know, they, the people who've been, who've lost their lives, those stories, we don't, we don't hear from the folks who are constantly threatened. So I'm in a position where I'm able to not speak for people, but at least share their, share their stories mm-hmm. and to, I would hope that if I were in a position where something was happening to me, other folks would also speak up. I think all of us would want that. Mm-hmm. And so being able to be in the position where I can, and the fact that it's like, it's not just uh, one thing here and there, it's like a pattern that's been going on around the world just for such a long time with yeah. folks in positions of power abusing their authority at the, to, to try to, min- to minimize it and try to summarize and folks who are constantly undergoing trauma, like, the ones might not have the opportunity to go on a podcast or to talk about it. I mean, everyone, people are fighting for their lives. People are fighting for survival. So if this is, this is just one small thing to at least give that a voice. Yeah. 
who who if someone were to go to to is there an archive for your podcast can people download old episodes it will be yeah you can download old episodes yeah. at the mutiny radio uh, webpage and we'll be on iTunes shortly. Yeah. We got our RSS feeds up very recently, so that's good. If someone who has never heard your podcast were were to start investigating, uh, um, would there be an episode that you would point them to, a, a story that they could hear that would be something that you feel like they would absolutely need to hear? Oh, I feel like... Every episode. Uh, th- th- yeah, and I've been doing it for almost two years now, so I've met so many incredible people and I'd want to go back. I was keeping a log. This I, I'm sure other like artistic folks can relate where with as far as the content and the creativity goes, like I'm totally there a hundred percent over overly invested. And then when it comes to the logistics and the managerial aspect of documenting everything, uh, I'm not quite as on top of that as I would like to be. So I do have all of these old shows, like really great interviews with people that I would like to share. Are there any people that like come to your mind immediately of of like a a story that you heard that, that, that really blew you away? Um, sure. There was uh, an environmental activist uh, back in the 90s who I spoke with, mm. and she was talking about another activist who was threatened by the, the OPD and the FBI, and a bomb was planted in her car. And pretty much what she was doing was trying to prevent uh, the trees from being cut down. So, you know, really basic, everyone can agree that nature needs to be protected, and uh, hearing how that she was threatened. And a lot of like environmental activists were were threatened uh, physically sometimes, but then also talking about like white privilege within that specific like activism uh, world where they did experience violence, but it was not on par with uh, violence that other folks like people of color have um, been exposed to by like the by law enforcement. Yeah. Two things come to mind. One, you, you said that like we can all agree that preserving nature is important, which my first thought is like, well, yeah, you and I can agree that, but I'm willing to bet there's somebody out there who would raise somehow raise the argument that like it's not important and they would find a way to make a very convincing sounding like mathematical proof. I, I read a story in this book on hypnosis one time uh, uh, about uh, this woman who uh, was hypnotized at, at like a certain cue. She was supposed to uh, uh, take off her shoe and put it on the mantelpiece. And the cue happened, she took off her shoe and she put it on the mantelpiece. And then the person in the room with her asked her why she did it. And she was kind of like confused for a second and then uh, uh, came up with like a very legitimate reason why she did it. It was a thing of like, she just remembered like an art piece that she had seen where, where somebody had used a shoe as a vase and so she put her shoe on the mantel and was gonna put flowers in it. She, she came up on the spot with rationalization that sounded to her perfectly legitimate when in fact it was an irrational uh, reason why she like picked up on this cue you know and the lesson from the story was that rather than kind of acknowledge that sometimes we don't know why we're doing something or that we're picking up on something subliminally we'll craft very intelligent stories to justify it to ourselves so that we don't have to actually cope with that realization that we're not really doing thinking in that moment um, and that just kind of comes to my mind right now of like so much of like the rhetoric that you hear these days sounds exactly like that to me. It's very intelligent rationalization that sounds very much like it's coming from people who are like fast asleep and don't realize it and are confused to have something pointed out that they're doing something outside of their control. Yes. That's, that's sorry. Oh, it's like with development, like that's another big thing that's going on in San Francisco. It's going on here too. And just yeah. people being displaced from their homes. Right. So that's another big thing where folks sometimes don't want to acknowledge if they're a part of it at all. And you you were saying before the podcast, tell me about what's going on in San Francisco right now, because it, <sighs> it, it sounds horrible. 
Yeah, that's that sums it up. Sorry. Uh, oh no, no, no. I mean, it's I've only been there for back for a couple of years, but a lot of folks have been evicted from their homes. Families who've been there for a long time. There's a shortage of teachers because teachers can no longer afford to live in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. There are empty apartments um, because there's a the mayor Ed Lee. There's going to be an election on November third. Hopefully, he'll be not elected. He has a lot of deals with development companies and like with tech folks and the tech companies, Twitter in particular, they're not taxed. So therefore, developers are coming in. People from like out of the country are coming in, buying up a lot of property. And there's a, there's a big homeless population in San Francisco, and there, there always has been. There's this idea that it's a sanctuary city where people can come here if they don't feel welcome other places. And there's a lot of social services that are provided for people. However, folks are being pushed out, and there are folks who have been uh, pushed out through the Ellis Act, and that's an act that makes it legal for landlords to evict people through no fault of the tenants at all. And so that's been going on for a long time. And so what, folks, what, what kind of reasons will they give to evict somebody? Um, could be just like anything, like pull that out of a hat. I'm sure I could make up something right now improvising that they would, they would, they would say was fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. uh-huh. Like, uh, uh, have like too many kids in their apartment or, or sure. Oh, 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 I have a friend whose family has been in a building for a really long time and they were like the, the company's just going, they're, they're being really inappropriate. They're saying like, you can't open the door in your bathrobe, for instance, hmm. who, why would you, why would that ever be an issue as to why someone can or cannot live in an apartment? Okay. Especially if your family has been there. So it's really just greed going beyond. It's like with, with prisons, how like sometimes they have limits as to what you can or cannot send the prisoners. Like you can't send new books or you can't send old books yeah. or you can't send books with this kind of content to people who are incarcerated. Yeah. So it's really just people in positions of power making the rules. Okay. And I think that can ruin a city. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you were saying that there's like a rising homeless population too, right? Sure. It, 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 we're seeing that in New York too. The, I mean, I, I was telling you about this before the podcast, but even here in, in Midtown, there's always been a, a pretty healthy homeless population uh, around like the Port Authority and, and uh, Penn Station. But it feels like in the last two months, it's exploded. Yeah. Um, and, and it's hard to account for. There's just suddenly so many more people on the streets and so many of them are on drugs. Uh, um, and, and along with that, that's going with the conversion of so many businesses and parking lots into new high rises. Uh, um, uh, uh, all these people are kind of like flooding into the city who, who, who there's a lot of wealth pumping into the city and, and, and corresponding with that wealth is a lot of displacement and a lot of entitlement. Yeah. Oh Yeah. Because I feel it's it's not even just people taking up space, but how people take up space and how people treat one another. Yeah, and so that's San Francisco doesn't feel very friendly at all. Yeah, it's uh, it feels quite uncomfortable at times for a lot of people. Which is so counter to the the kind of romantic image of San Francisco yeah. that a lot of us have in our minds. Yeah. A lot of us think of San Francisco as like the most open place you could be. It's it's the population has just become so. I would say it's a lot younger and a lot more homogenous yeah. and it's, it's very, it's like become like a very white city Yeah, and a lot of people have been pushed out and it's a disgrace. I want to talk about carelessness and insensitivity for a second. We're, we're actually uh, uh, getting close to wrapping up, okay. but I have a couple more questions I want to ask. Okay. I was going to make one, one note too, please, please. before about with talking about homelessness, I wanted to mention that in San Francisco, there's an organization, another, oh, there's so many people I talked to who are great. There's an organization called coalition on homelessness mm-hmm. and they actually go out and work with homeless folks and they're able to get like statistics and details from people. And there's the, the police end up criminalizing the homeless. I'm mm-hmm. sure it's the same here mm-hmm. and it's the same, in a lot of places, but that's one big thing where folks moving into the neighborhoods would then call the police on people who either who are either drinking or not doing 
not doing anything at all, but their way for conflict resolution is to then call the police, and then people end up going to jail. However, 80% of the people in the San Francisco jail were there pre-trial, which means they're there because they could not afford bail. So it's really, as more people are moving in, they're using law enforcement to displace more people. It's like, it's like a private army. Yeah, yeah, and they would displace people's camp. People would come in and like set up a camp on a sidewalk or in a park or wherever they felt safe. Then the cops, it's their job to go in and ask them to move, even though those people don't have another place to go, and they're going to know where they feel the most safe. But by move, having them move, they end up not being safe. Mm-hmm. So it really just makes things worse. Mm-hmm. I just had to mention that. Uh, 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 yeah, it's, it's some of it too... There's there's like a fear of weirdness. I mean, you can feel it sometimes. Like even if you're on a train, and again, I'm guilty of this myself. I don't exclude myself from this. I, I, I'm I'm part of the problem. But you know, like a, a, a strange person will come onto the train muttering to themselves, or or their sense of spatial awareness is is kind of puts you on the alert a little bit. You yeah. begin to worry that you might be in danger. And even if they're not doing anything at all, to- totally harmless, you're just kind of on the alert. And there is something about like the way that that culturally we deal with the unlovables or the weird or the people who put us neurologically on an alert rather than having to kind of like face them and meet them and have them meet us. uh, It's so much easier to call the cops and get them out and invent a reason to why they don't belong there. And and you know what I mean? Like so much of it to me also feels like like the more homogenized people become, uh, 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 the, the easier it is to, to just kind of dislocate other people simply because you feel weird about them. Yes. Which is a real, I think that that's a major, uh, it, it, going with the theory that we as a species are evolving. And I think that we are. I, I, I do think that we are. But I think that evolution is an ugly business. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, uh, um, um, but going with that, there's going to be more and more weirdness in general because that's part of like weirdness and individuality and uniqueness go so hand in hand. Yes. And kind of one thing that, at least in my experience, I'm seeing, or, or maybe I'm just being more aware of it recently, is this kind of pitched battle between seeing yourself and seeing everybody else in terms of your allegiance to whatever, whatever you use to identify yourself with Republican, Democrat, uh, uh, whatever the fuck it is versus seeing the individual human being who's in front of you and and learning to speak a language with that human being rather than the idea that that human being represents to you. That seems to be like a major issue going forward in the near future. Yes, I would agree. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Um, because in New York diversity in improv has, has become a major topic recently. Yeah. Um, as I'm sure you're aware of good. Yeah. Um, and and along with diversity, just in terms of, of like, um, people of more people of color representing in, in comedy, there's also like gender balance issues or or a major representation, sexual orientation issues are a major source of representation. Um, uh, I hope that this is, you know, please. I was going to throw in age as well. And then also ability. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Um, um, uh, how in your, how do we make that better? Talking to a, 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 a cisgendered white straight guy, oh. how do we, how do we make it better? Uh, it's, it starts from within certainly, uh, becoming educated. And there's a, a saying, I wish I had the name of the person who I could 
give them their uh, the credit for this quote, but it's uh, to when you're at, around at a, at a dinner table, uh, look who's around and think about who's there and who's not there and think about why that is. So really it's thinking about who you're spending time with, who you're learning from, who you're learning, or you're, who you're teaching, who you're learning from, who you're communicating with, who's in your family, uh, however you want to define family and thinking about expanding that mm-hmm. and, and talking to folks who might not look like you or might not have the same job as you or might not be the from, some, from the same place as you or maybe disagreeing who disagree on an issue like the person, that comedian who heckled, you know, my set, we were able to talk about it afterwards and I've seen him since and we're actually better off than we were before in yeah. a way where it's really engaging with people you might disagree with um, because that's conversations are one, I guess, nonviolent way of at least sharing that information. And so the more like the broader the scope and the more friends that one has, then other people meet people through other people. So really just going up and being as open as possible um, from within. This to, to kind of wrap it up, uh, goes back to like one of the things that I love about you so very much for someone who has identified as so shy and introverted uh, uh, um, I know very few people who go so out of their way to do exactly what you're saying right now, to think about the people who are not in the room and to find them and engage with them and, and bridge a dialogue with them and learn about them and welcome them and, and expand yourself to include them. Uh, um, I just, that's it. There's no point behind it. It's just, it, it is a delight to talk to you, Roman well, Reimer. It's a delight to talk to you too. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, where can people find stuff out about you? What, if not your website and your show, what is important that you would like people to check out? Um, check out each other. <laughs> <laughs> Roman Reimer, thank you very much for talking. This has been the Magnet Podcast. Uh, thank you to uh, uh, Grant Michael Goldberg, our engineer, to Evan Ford Barden, our producer, Ed Herbstman our executive producer, and of course, uh, to Roman Reimer for being such a delightful guest. Thank you all for listening. Bye, everyone. Bye, bye, bye. You've been listening to The Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.